Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. And Russell and I are here again for another version. And we've just had uh, Jay Frost join us. He's come in from another meeting. But Jay um, has been a TEDx speaker. He's an expert on many things about funding. And Jay, we just talk about your topic and we have a few questions for you. But before we get started with any of the, that, that stuff, I think it'd be good for you to tell people a little bit about who you are, what's, what's a little bit about, about your background, just, you know, just a couple of minutes, and then why are you doing the kind of work that you're doing? So, Jay Frost, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, I, let me see, where do I begin? Uh, <laughs> I've been in the world of, of philanthropy and fundraising since, well, since I, since I started working. Um, as I think I told you uh, earlier, uh, just recently, uh, I began as a grant maker. I, I stumbled luckily into that world where I was, uh, I had the, the, the real rare privilege of being able to help direct funds to artists. And, uh, but quickly discovered that, that it would be helpful to be on the other side of that equation to better understand what it's like to have to um, ask uh, for support and to work with organizations that are always seeking that kind of help as they, as they work to try and uh, address the needs of their communities uh, and going far beyond the arts, although I love the arts very much. Uh, there's a lot of need across the country. We have over 1.2 million organizations and all of them uh, are desperate for resources. So. It was a very easy uh, way for me to, um, to bring some real value and start working with, with folks who, um, who needed to find out how to better uh, marry their interests to the interests of people who had resources. And so I've spent the better part of the last nearly 35 years uh, doing precisely that, finding out uh, who had uh, uh, money and passion and uh, trying to see if there was a, a land bridge or at least an idea bridge between those those people and those organizations, and uh, and maybe sometimes get a little bit of an epiphany um, for the organizations who might be reluctant to share power with potential supporters. Um, so it's been a great journey, and I'm still in the middle of it. Today, I, I work uh, with a number of consultancies, uh, helping on large capital projects and sometimes small ones, sometimes working with emerging organizations here and abroad, and, uh, and also trying to bring training and coaching to organizations uh, uh, in many places, uh, including through the kind of webinars I was doing just minutes ago, um, it, it, to organizations that are, um, again, spread around the world who have a need to figure out where's our next dollar going to come from, how are we going to pay the bills, and more importantly, what's going to transform the mission we're hoping to create. You know, that's the bottom line for, for, for Russell and me. You know, people, people talk about money, but it's, it's what happens with the money. And and we have this funny thing about money with nonprofits that the word is stupid. It's a lie. We got to make a profit because it's ought to be called something different because profit, we, we normally conceive of the money that goes in somebody's pocket, not the money that's invested in the work that we do. So it's maybe it's retained earnings, maybe it's something else, but it really, it's, it's a whole paradigm shift. Yeah. So, um, Jay Frost and I met on LinkedIn. Russell David Dennis is on, 
on the on this. He's co-host of this, and uh, Russell and you have things in common. He he worked with an Indian reservation as a the funding person for eleven years, and then he's been on the other side with IRS, so he knows about compliance. Oh, and so he's got a really really good good lens to look through. So so Jay, let me let me kick it off, and then Russell, I put in some questions in the the chat box if you wanted to piggyback on any of those. Um, so, so Jay, everybody says, oh, we just had funding, everything would be good. I find that there's a, a prerequisite to attract the funding. And then even if you got the funding, um, what good would it do you if you don't have the, the team to execute and the plan to execute and the leadership to carry the ball forward and the way to build uh, capacity so you create sustainability. So when we start out, what are some of the barriers you, somebody comes to you and says, we want to raise some money. What are the deficits people come to you with? And, and people, so people could be prepared if they wanted to talk to you about funding. What should they have in place? What are the deficits? And then the reverse of that, what should they have in place? There are so many, and they're, and they're usually unique to the organization, but there are some that many unfortunately share. And so one that, that the, a couple of these, I, I have to admit, they kind of surprised me in the last few years how many organizations I discover don't have three things. These are not necessarily related items, but they're all fundamental. And one is state registration. So when you just mentioned, Russell, your work with the IRS, um, I, I, since I work mainly on capital campaigns, I walk into an organization, my assumption has always been, well, of course you're registered to fundraise, aren't you? Well, what's been surprising is many aren't. Now, sometimes it's because they don't know, and that's okay. But sometimes I've had one of these conversations where I have to say, you know, I really think you should just do it across the country. If you have a donate now button on your website, I'm not an attorney, but I would just feel more comfortable if I were just set to raise money anywhere in case someone wanted to give money to me. And then they'll respond in different ways, such as, well, if we're only applying to foundations, and I'll say, are they giving you money? Well, maybe you should be registered to raise money. So that's a simple one, but and it's and it's actually not that expensive. If you're a serious organization, you'd think you'd want that in place. Um, you don't have to have one physical office, but if you're not registered to raise money, you probably shouldn't be doing it. The next thing is a board. Now, I know that seems obvious too, and every organization has one, but not necessarily a board that's giving and asking. So if, 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 if we don't have 100% participation in the board, I don't know how they can go out and ask anyone else for support. And again, that's very fundamental and it's very obvious, but I keep running into organizations that don't do it. Um, so it's kind of surprising. Um, another thing that I've been running into a lot just recently is um, either the absence of or a lack of broadcasting about the um, policies and procedures of the organization. Now this also sounds kind of boring, but it's really important. It's like the infrastructure of the house. If an organization uh, doesn't have uh, gift acceptance policies in place to guard against accepting money from the wrong kinds of places or money that is not aligned with their mission, then I, if they can't go and tell the public, yes, we took money from this source and feel good about it, they probably shouldn't be asking for it from those places. So that's kind of the worst case scenarios, but I think actually each of those are easily addressed. And since two of them are really core infrastructure and one is setting the stage for every time they go out and ask anybody for support and really share their vision for the future, 
I don't see how any organization can do without those three things. What was, uh, what was the, as you made this transition from securing the funds to looking at uh, people who are eligible and doling funds out, what was the most, uh, what was the one thing you found out in making that transition that you didn't know before? Hmm. Well, you mean in terms of finding people who have those? In, in terms of, yeah. And shifting from finding funds to giving funds out, uh, was there a big aha? Yeah, there well, and, and for me, of course, roles? it was it was the reverse. I was giving away, um, in that case, uh, the government's money, um, but uh, that was giving away money for the arts. Um, yeah. But the the big shift for me, the big aha moment, uh, first in terms of making that, which personally it was, uh, I, I think I may have told you this, Hugh, that I had conversations with a couple of people who were. Uh, gift recipients, and I first of all, it, it, uh, I realized how important this support was for those people, not just financially but emotionally, to get that that uh, that what's the right word for it that endorsement that um, that encouragement. Um, but this was a long time ago, so I, it was the '80s, and um, we couldn't have done what we're doing right now. There, 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 there really wasn't, there was an internet, but it was being used by the defense department. It wasn't being used by folks like us. Yeah. And so, and we didn't have email addresses, as I recall, at least not, I don't think we were using them to any great degree. And uh, I, so I had conversations with people and I was 24 and these people were in their eighties. And, uh, and I realized that they, they, they were extremely deferential to me as a young man, since they couldn't see me. Um, and I was, of course, respectful of them, but I had that epiphany where I realized the, the road they journeyed, they journeyed is, is so profound that, uh, that I, have to, I have to be, I have to understand what it's like to be in those shoes. So that was the personal moment for me. But in terms of, you know, what, if, what has that meant for practice, for working with organizations and trying to make, make sure I understand that, it actually came much later. Uh, so I worked a lot with uh, data. In, in my career as a fundraising consultant and services provider. And for a long time, that was with insider securities data. This is another kind of arcane area of fundraising. Um, so I, I had uh, data that we worked with that we got from the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. And then we worked with organizations, whether it was you know, Harvard or MIT or a local social service agency or arts organization, they all needed to figure out who are the 1% of the people who can make a really big difference and this isn't just going around knocking on doors, hoping for the best or putting a you know, pot in front of the grocery store. All of that's important. But, but these are people who are already in our file. They graduated from our school. They received treatment from our hospital. They show up every year at the benefit. They bought season subscription tickets. They care. But we don't know they have those resources. And they don't know we don't know it. So I, you know, I, I recognize through that process of learning about information that there are a lot of things that organizations can do to not only find where the money is, but to start understanding where these people are coming from. Because if, if you're a person who, let's say, um, you know, you're working hard at your little company and then suddenly it's bought up by another company, your life is changing, probably in ways you don't fully understand or appreciate that moment. Same thing is true of a company that goes public and you're an executive at the company. Suddenly, all this stock that really had no value 
is very valuable. And maybe it's only valuable in a certain time windows every year as your options vest. This is a lot of data, but the real point is you have to, I think we should be sensitive to where people are and how their lives are changing and, uh, and then be able to reach out to them in an appropriate, respectful way, but not to avoid talking to them. There, and and there, there's, there's a tendency, I think, to separate ourselves, uh, especially organizations and donors, from one another because we're afraid. We're afraid to talk to them about giving. We're afraid to talk to them about their financial circumstances. We're afraid to talk to them about the big issues, about how they want to be remembered by their children. But in fact, those are the most important things to talk well, speak about. to that. that that's, that's a very common thing that people are afraid. We have this money shadow thing. Yes. Why do you think that is? I don't, I, I wish I knew. Uh, I mean, I know why asking for money is uncomfortable for people because I've had to train a lot of people to do it. But, but if we, but I don't know, I don't know about the, the money part. Um, but, but I wonder if maybe we could help people get over that a bit by helping them to simply stop thinking about themselves and start thinking about the other person. What is it like to be in their shoes? To, to help to ask good questions rather than trying to sell stuff try to find out who they are, where they're coming from, what, they, what matters to them. Um, you know, there's a whole, lot of, a whole lot of things we got going here, a lot of topics. That, let, me, um, let me say that I would add one to your three, your list of three. The fourth one, I think especially to grant makers, they want to see a strategy so you have well-defined outcomes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they want to fund, they want to fund the impact of your work. And uh, I find vast majority of, of organizations either don't have a strategy or they have not, or the strategy is simply a piece of paper. They've not fully integrated into the board and the board is not active with it. So an active board, I think, is one of the first things the grant makers look at. So we talked about your finding your next donor. And so there's there's sponsorships, there's donate, there's there's philanthropy, which is corporate or private donations. But there's also corporate sponsorships, which is another pocket of marketing money, but uh, we, we teach there's eight minimum streams of revenue. So let's focus on, I understand that the vast majority of the funding for most nonprofits comes from individual donors. And okay. a lot of the startups think there's, they're gonna get grants, it's gonna change their life, they just start up and write a grant and everything's hunky-dory. I don't know where that fallacy comes from, so let's hone in on this donor thing because that's, I think that's the backbone of our budget, isn't it? It's, uh, it, yes, I mean, I know we can't use national statistics and generalize about a specific organization, but nationally speaking, 86 plus percent of the money comes from individuals. And, the, and in addition, if an organization is waging a capital campaign, then they might find as much as 95 to 97% of the money is coming from as few as 1% or fewer of the individuals. It might, it might be as much as 3%, it depends on the capital campaign size, but it's all individual money. It, 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 so institutional money is important for a variety of reasons. Uh, the imprimatur provides the vetting process, so organizations think smart about what is the impact I hope to achieve through this program. I absolutely agree with you, that's fundamental. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, most of the money comes from individuals and even within institutions, it's individuals making decisions. If we're not talking to people, instead we're talking to institutions, we're not getting anywhere. And we certainly can't grow, it's unsustainable. Now there are those grants where we need to be 
we need to have their emblem on our programs. The, Absolutely. The, the, the arts, the arts granting organizations, we, you know, we need, even though it's small dollars, right. it's, you know, it's, it's a validation Absolutely. For, for, for an arts organization. I'm talking about the, the Lynchburg Symphony. I've learned a lot about the topic of development. I noticed you haven't used the word development. You've used funding and donors. So um, there's, there's some misconceptions on development as a profession. I, um, I encourage people to think about a, a funding strategy, which is first you have your, your strategy for your business, your nonprofit, then you, you build a marketing strategy, build a funding strategy to support your strategic plan. Mm -hmm. So talk about the topic of, of development and then talk about this, this, how do we approach these people who really could write us a check, but we don't know how? Wow, there's a lot baked into that too. I mean, first it's about the language we use. So why, why do I say fundraising? I guess because it's, it's what it is. Uh, I mean, it's, and I don't think we should be ashamed of it. Uh, development's fine, advancement's fine, but these are just, if the words, if people don't know what we're talking about when we talk to somebody outside of our field, I think we've got a problem. I don't think we should hide what we do. We should be proud of what we do. Um, I mean, we're not, and, and by the way, what I, I, I don't have a problem with sales. Sales is great too. But, but what we're doing is different from sales in that we are not trying to get people to buy stuff here when we do fundraising. We're not trying to convince people to do anything in fundraising. We're not trying to persuade people. I don't believe that anyway. I don't think you can persuade anybody of anything. But what we are doing is opening a door to allow people to invest meaningfully in the things that are meaningful to them. And if that's what we're doing, and that's fundraising, I think we should be very proud of it. So, I mean, at some level, that's, that's important to get out there. Um, the broader question, uh, you know, I guess if, I, if, I'm, if I'm understanding you right, I, what, how do we get people to then move from being casually interested in something, if they have the resources to actually committing to it, um, I think that a lot of that comes from listening to people. And if we spent more energy doing that, uh, spending two thirds or more of our time just listening to people and then showing them that we've heard them, as simple as that sounds. First of all, then when we lose, when we don't get the money we want, everybody walks away happier. Um, but most importantly, it's much more likely people are are going to invest in things that they've told us that they want to do rather than something we'd want them to do. And, and this, is, this is throughout the field of fundraising too. I mean, because we, too many times organizations are, are saying, and they do this in politics every day too, and drives us all nuts, is that they'll say, uh, you know, this is my deadline. This is my quarterly deadline. You know, this is our goal. This is what we have to do. Who cares? I mean, what matters is what matters to, the community and, the, and these people, because these people are the ones who are going to decide if they're going to give their money to us to enact this great mission, to make these good things happen, or they're going to give it to their kids. I, well, I mean, so, why, so why should they care about our goals and our deadlines? It's, yeah. It should be about them. Russell's smiling. It's one of the things I've learned from Russell is you know, even recruiting board members, find out what they want. Yeah. So uh, Russell, he's grinning ear to ear here because that's, that's, a, that's a sermon he preaches often. What do you think, Russ? Well, you know, it's about language and 
and finding what moves people. It's all about them. We forget that it's not about us when we're out there trying to get that check. Uh, and that's, that's pretty common. I was thinking about, um, about where you look for these folks because it's going to differ from uh, every organization. So <clears throat> what are some of the best places for uh, an organization to look for donors? You know, well, the best place is right in their own database. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of like a pebble in a pond. Mm. Uh, so the water is still, and then there's the splash. That's hopefully the, the board and the people closest to them. Uh, they have to start. Um, and that's why I said there has to be participation at a, at a high level. It doesn't always have to be high dollars, but it better be meaningful to those board members. And then it goes out from there, the other, the other people that we've touched directly through our services and our work, and then those others in the community who have uh, a, you know, a, a similar or a unified interest with that, et cetera, et cetera. And, but then there's the other piece of that, which is show love to all, because that's what we're in the business of doing, social good. But we do have to focus our time and attention on people who have the resources to give. So it, 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 to put this in terms of metrics, um, I would like to see any organization's development officer having at least 10 to 15 meetings per month. That means that those meetings will have to be with people who have the financial wherewithal to really help. It's not that we don't want to talk to other people, we do. But, but we, we, if we can only see 10 to 15 people a month, those people had better be people who A, care about the same things, or we think they do anyway, and then B, have the resources to do it. And, and so how would you find that? Well, there are actually some very specific tools to do that. Um, and, uh, but there are, there are easily at least six characteristics of that kind of financial capacity and, and affinity. So one would be uh, um, that they've given uh, significantly to us. That's the most obvious. Another one is they've given significantly to others. And you can find that through databases like uh, the one at Nozo, which is part of Blackbaud, or the one that I think is larger now, it's 275 million records. That's at Donor Search. Um, so giving to others. Another is uh, their service on a board or foundation. So even if it's not our board, if they're serving another board, hopefully they're in the same spirit as our board, meaning they're invested and they care and they're putting in resources and time. So, and we can probably find that the two to 3% of the people in our database who are serving on a nonprofit or foundation board are probably giving us a disproportionate amount of money, maybe as much as 25% of our revenue. We just don't know who they are. So those people, and where can you find them? Uh, ProPublica has a great free database. Uh, and another one is the Foundation Center, which for, I think, $45 a month is probably the best bargain of any tool out there. Uh, so those are three pieces. And then the last two would be um, real estate. Uh, if somebody owns, or uh, three more pieces, real estate, if somebody owns two or more properties, or they own a single property worth in excess of $2 million than the top 1% of the population. Um, and then, uh, let me see, uh, political giving. Uh, there's almost a one-to-one -one correlation if someone's a political donor, either party, by the way. Uh, and they give over $1,000 to an FEC campaign. Uh, they, those kinds of people are probably giving us as much as 70% of our revenue right now. We just don't know who they are. So if you can find others who are political donors, at that level, then they're good people.
people to go and have a visit with, talk to them, find out what they care about. It won't be reflected in their political donations because they usually only have a couple of choices. That's, that's not a lot of great <laughs> choices in politics, but we can offer them a lot of choice in our world. And then finally, people who own businesses, they're in excess of 10 million in revenue and uh, private businesses, and then people who are insiders in the stock market. There are only about 800,000 or so of those people living in debt since 1985. And that's a very small universe of people with a lot of liquidity, and sometimes they're quite public, but there's still people who put their pants on one leg at a time. There's still people who are trying to figure out if their stock made money or lost money yesterday, what does that mean? And so if we have an opportunity to have our 10 to 15 meetings a month, then I hope we'll see somebody in one of those categories because those people together will make up the top 3% of our population in our database. It'll be extremely focused and we'll be always talking to people who we know something about what they care about and we know they have the financial ability to help on the things that they, that they decide to invest in. Well, that wherewithal is definitely important. Uh, what are some things that uh, a nonprofit can do to make themselves eligible to receive non-cash assets? Because as you know, yeah. uh, the tax law has really impacted the way that we donate. And uh, first, do you see many organizations that are well uh, organized to accept non-cash assets? Mm -hmm. And then what are some steps uh, an organization can take if they're not? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because, again, it's so individual. I, most of the organizations I work with are in a position to accept at least stock gifts um, or to talk to somebody about a gift from a donor advice fund, although mm -hmm. that might end up being in the form of cash anyway, but, but it's sitting in this pool over here. Um, but, uh, but just because they can accept it doesn't mean they'll necessarily uh, position themselves to do so effectively, to market it. Um, and this is very true about anything resembling estate planning or, or planned gifts, where it, they could include some information on their website. That would be a nice thing to do. It's not perfect, but it's a good start. They could have seminars on that sort of thing to at least make people aware that they could be a recipient, because so many bequests are a surprise. And, and if we talk to people directly, we're more likely to get a larger bequest. Um, another thing would be to... Um, Oh, uh, even putting information right within our newsletters. So, and, and something it could be as simple as uh, something about a planned giving program, but it might also be uh, something like this: Do you uh, does your company match donations? Um, and and there's a whole database of matching gift data. Uh, there are a couple of them actually. Uh, so organizations can utilize that information to find those people, but they could also just be marketing it, talking about it on a regular basis so that uh, instead of people having to guess as donors, they could know who is kind of a friendly environment to receive those kinds of gifts. You're, and I absolutely agree with you, Russell. I mean, the, the money coming from those sources is where the most money is going to come from. It's again, a small group of people who have those assets and they're looking to make that stuff meaningful. And, uh, and our tax laws may be changing all the time, but not where people hold that money. So it, it, it gets more complicated if it's a boat or a car or a train or you know, who knows, uh, something like that. But when it comes to, to the financial instruments, every organization should have a plan for receiving these things. So Jay, you, you referred to a, a donor advised fund. Would you define that for us? 
Uh, a donor advised fund would be where um, an organization, it, 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 let's say a Fidelity charitable gift fund, uh, has uh, the ability for people to set up funds, I think for as little as $10,000, where they can put money in, they can receive the, the tax uh, benefit at that time that they set up the fund, and then they advise Fidelity or they ask Fidelity to make a distribution when they wish to do it, and it could be annually or it might not. This is why they're a little controversial, actually. Not, not legally controversial, but controversial among those who want to encourage more philanthropy because it may inadvertently delay people's giving. But in any case, uh, people, again, put some money in like they would a bank. Uh, Fidelity holds it. And then uh, if, I'm, if I'm the holder of a Fidelity charitable gift fund account, I could say, well, I'd like to give some money to my alma mater this year. So would you please uh, you know, give uh, 500 of my $10,000 to the University of Michigan? And uh, they would say, essentially, we've taken it under advisement. <laughs> but of course they would do it because why wouldn't they? Uh, so it, it's almost always going to go to where you want it to go if you're uh, recommending uh, as the donor a legitimate 501c3 organization. And, but this is the important part, Hugh, and, and maybe you're getting to that, which is now I think Fidelity is the number one uh, charity in America, if I'm not mistaken. And, and all the donor advised funds have grown so dramatically. I can't remember the figure right now, but we're talking about many billions of dollars sitting there waiting to be given. And what's difficult for us, of course, is that nonprofits, there, there's no database of that. I can't go and look up uh, who has a donor advised fund in the same way I could look up a foundation through the foundation center or all the other things we just discussed. So it makes it tougher for us, but it also means, as you were pointing out, Russell, if we can talk about it, then the people who have these donor advised funds are more likely to think, oh, well, maybe I'll make a distribution to the social service agency in my neighborhood and help them out. Talk for a minute the, the difference between a donor advised fund and a family office. Oh, wow. Well, okay, now I haven't worked with the family offices personally, uh, but my understanding is that they're pretty dramatically different because uh, and, and correct me if you know you with your insights, but uh, the, that's where the family office, first of all, is going to control more than whatever they might have in terms of a foundation. But but as a subset of the decisions they make to protect the assets and the integrity of the family, um, that they might have a component which is about philanthropy, where they endeavor to bring the family together on those issues, and they might have an instrument which is a family foundation in order to make those distributions, and the family foundation would have. Uh, a board, which would be made up of family members, typically living family members, presumably, um, could be multi-generations. And then there would be staffing of it. It could be part-time, it could be full-time, it could be the lawyer's office, but there's some kind of person staffing the, the activity. And it's more expensive to set up and more expensive to run. Um, the donor advised fund, uh, anybody can set one up if you've got 10 grand. In fact, less than that with some of these donor advised funds. Hey, Russell, you notice the, the piano beside him. He's, a, he's a, <laughs> talked about working with arts organizations. Uh, is piano your instrument, Jay? Uh, I have a number of instruments, and the reason it's a little messy in here is we just had our annual cookie and music exchange party. So half the house moved into my office. Um, yeah, so yeah. this is a, a little electric keyboard. Our, our uh, baby Baldwin is out there. We have four guitars three cellos, a banjo. Oh, I don't even know what's out there anymore. 
Yeah. Well, well, Hugh plays, he's got this little stick and he waves that thing around and you, you think you got a whole orchestra there, That's just waving the he, stick and it's the real music guy. everywhere. Yeah. I don't know how he does it. But it's, I just play one on TV, but he's, yes. <laughs> he does a great job with that. So uh, in, in preparing yourself uh, for an organization, what, what are some things that an organization should have internally and structurally? That will uh, that will increase their capability to accept different types of gifts, non-cash gifts. Sure. Well, in addition to all the things we talked about before, especially Hughes' point, <laughs> um, uh, I would say uh, one thing they'd want is they want a um, okay. Start from the beginning. Strategic plan. Like, what is the organization there to do? Yeah. And then flowing from the strategic plan, a fundraising plan. So how are we going to raise the money to do the things that we've said we want to do? So the dollar shouldn't be leading the mission. The mission should be leading the dollars. Um, and then uh, the staff that's going to implement the fundraising plan. I don't think it's fair to an organization, to the board, or to the community to operate um, without somebody who's really responsible for the fundraising activity. It's, a, it's an important piece. And if an organization has the money, they should, they should immediately make that hire. Um, and they shouldn't job it out to a consultant. Consultants are great, but they have very specific purposes and uses in lots of different settings. Uh, I wouldn't be paying triple to have somebody sit there and do a job that would be wonderful to have owned by the organization. Um, so I would say that, that that would be my order. And then what the reason why that would be important is because then if we know why we're doing what we're doing and when we want to do it, and what it's going to cost. Then we know the, the different pieces we're going to need to employ in order to raise that money. <laughs> and then we have a person to implement those things we've said we want to do with some flexibility because things change and things don't go as we plan. But, but generally, we've got the person, the plan, and the mission. Then um, doing something like say, we better put up a page on our website that talks about deferred gifts becomes a lot easier because now that's just a feature. The real benefit is all the other stuff. Yeah, it's really important to have that key person if you can have them. And a lot of organizations were going to going after people like that. And Compass Point did a really interesting study in 2013 uh, that talked about, you know, that fundraising uh, infrastructure. And so uh, once you have this person, they have to have the support of all of the key people, key team members, key board members in order to be effective as opposed to just being said, go forth and rain us money. <laughs> it's true. So Jay, relationship. Um, we got mental capital. This is what we're going to do for the world. And we've, we want financial capital, but there's relationship capital that's the conduit. Hmm. How important is it to have relationships inside of private foundations um, when you're trying to write a grant? Um, I, hmm. Uh, if I can look at that more broadly and then zero in, I think that the relationships are, are fundamental, again, to what we're doing. That's why I think the staff role and the board are so important, uh, wrapped around that mission and the, and the vision and the strategy. But um, because they're going to be building relationships that then focused around what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it, the why and then the how. So if, if um, it, but then what should they be doing? Should they be raising money? Yes, but how do you raise money? You raise money by building a relationship with people so they can trust you, 
So you'll be a good steward of the resources that they want to invest in that mission that they, where you're aligned. So I, yeah, I think that that mission, excuse me, that relationship capital is essential. Uh, and uh, so how do you get there with the foundation is a, is a harder thing because a lot of foundations, of course, as you know, will say, we don't accept unsolicited, um, you know, uh, request for support. My, my reaction to that is, well, then we want to be solicited. So let's get to know them. Um, and it's, is it possible to get to know people within foundations if you don't currently? I think it is. I think you may have to work a little bit at it. Uh, there are lots of ways to do that. We could talk about that all day. Um, but uh, one of them might be to simply, again, look at your database and find out who you know who already is connected to a foundation, which you can do through a screening tool, um, like with uh, Donor Search or potentially maybe Wealth Engine, iWave, BlackBot, any of those tools would allow you to find these wealth holders, but also people who might be more likely, if not definitively, connected to a foundation. So in other words, we're talking to somebody we already know who's already invested in us about the place where they're, where they're protecting the assets of their family or their vision, because sometimes it's not a family foundation. And now we're talking to them personally. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's all about relationships, even when it doesn't seem to be, because the, if, if let's, let's imagine someone listening into us talking today said, I, you know, I heard about a foundation in town. I'm not really sure how to get through to them. My reaction is, well, why do you want to get through to them? Are you just looking for their money? Because if all you're looking for is money, then it's going to be pretty hard to raise money. You're looking for an opportunity to work with someone to do a better job of what you do. And part of that requires resources. And you think that they have a similar interest, that your missions are aligned. Then, yeah, I absolutely want to get to know those people. I want to find out what else they fund, when they funded it, uh, who serves on their board, what their interests are. I want to show up at events that they've sponsored. I want to... I, I want to know as much as I can, and then I want to find an opportunity to get to know them and to ask them, what drives you? What's important to you? How is it that you want to make change in the world? And then if we have something aligned, then I can say, well, no, it, we're doing this project. It sounds like these other things that you're interested in. Would you be interested in hearing more about that? I would want them to ask me for a proposal. Um, so that sounds like a really long process, but uh, there's a there's an old uh, thing that he used to talk about in Japanese business, which is that uh, in, in compared to, to American business, my wife is from Japan, which is why I say this, which is that you, um, in Japan, you work really, 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 really long time and it seems to take forever. And then everything goes really fast and you complete. But here in the United States, and we do things really well, but we don't always do them carefully. We do things really fast and then it takes forever because we kind of, we didn't think it through. And I think, in fundraising, we can learn a little bit from that other approach. Let's be patient. Patient money is good money. Let's be patient with our time, too. Let's really get to know people before we see them, after we meet them, and then let's make a marriage that's going to last. Because the worst thing that can happen is you get a little money today, and you're never getting it tomorrow, and you can't sustain it. And I think institutional philanthropy is a great example of that. Let's get to know these folks. Let's make them our partner. And then that's really good with a donor advised funds because they they actually take that money, they invest it, there's capital gains on it. Yes. And that those gains are, are deductible. Right. Uh, whether the money is distributed. And they're only required to distribute five percent. So they're looking. They're looking 
for good projects. They have money and they want to put Absolutely. it somewhere. Or else they, so it's really yeah, about exactly that's 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 the idea. And 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 so some people have complained. No, it's sitting there forever. And and maybe they're right. That's a complaint. But my reaction is well, maybe the reason it's sitting there forever is because we haven't given them a good compelling reason to invest it in these projects. So why do some organizations stay small when others grow big? Maybe it's because they don't think big enough. I'm not gonna blame every small organization. I'm not intending that to mean that at all. Sometimes there are other impediments to growth. Sometimes we don't need to grow or want to grow. All those things are fine. But if we need to serve a need that's not being addressed, then maybe we need to think a little bigger. So when we go and talk to somebody with those kinds of resources, especially if they're tucked away in a fund like that, we're talking their language about something that's important to them. So we can really do something meaningful. And I think about this with uh, the growth of homelessness, for example, where uh, these agencies serving that need, and now it's exploding in communities across the country because of the lack of affordable housing. How do we address that? I definitely don't have the answer. But one thing I do know is if, if an organization is below a million dollars, it's probably not gonna be able to address it very easily. And those which scale so they can be adaptable to the need in the community, and ask donors to make significant investments toward addressing that need as it changes, they're gonna be more successful in addressing homelessness. If, we, if they think small, they're only gonna have limited resources to do it, and they're not gonna be very appealing to people who've tucked their money away in these big donor advisors. That's pretty good key. So if you look at the landscape yeah. for getting connected with a lot of these people, I'm sure the technology has probably made that a little bit easier than it was at one yeah. point in time. Yeah, I think so too. But uh, how can, uh, how has that impacted the way that people look for for people that deploy that that money? Uh, right. Talk a little bit about the kind of changes that have taken place in, in identifying donors and uh, places for research. Let's say they don't have these folks in their database. Yeah. Uh, how do they go about finding them and making those connections? That's, that's, that's fair. I mean, there are some who just don't. But for the most part, um, most organizations I've seen, there's, there's, uh, there are a few. Uh, if anybody who has a kind of a uh, representative, geographically representative database, probably has a few of these people. But it's always the 1% rule. It's, there's going to be 1% of your donors or friends who have some resources. And getting to know them is going to be important. And most organizations probably know half those people, but the other half they may not know very well. They don't realize it. So whether they only have a thousand people in their database or whether they have a hundred thousand or a million people in their database, they probably really only know half the people who have these kinds of resources and interests. So, so how's it changed? A lot. Uh, when I got started in this, it wasn't just the lack of internet, like it was when I was a grant maker in 1984. It's also um, the growth in all these databases and, and the accumulation of data is, is enormous, especially in the last few years. So um, now you can go to a number of companies where you could screen your database or you could use an online resource to find both more about your existing donors and friends, but also yeah. new people. And, uh, and for example, there's, there's a database within uh, one service where you can look up uh, donors who have given to specific kinds of organizations uh, by their what's called an NTEE code, or you know it's a typology of these uh, organizations, and then uh, a geographic area like a digit, you know, three-digit SIP, and a gift amount. And so you could pull up a list of all the people, let's say, in um, Charleston, what you know, uh, or or in San Francisco, pick a city. 
um, and uh, who had given to uh, dance um, and gifts of over a thousand dollars. And it wouldn't cover all the people, but it would cover a good number. And you could pull that list then and you could send them a note or invite them to your next event or uh, and find out how they were connected to the people on your board. Maybe you could just bring that list to your board and do an old fashioned peer review where you sit down together and over you know, lunch and lock the door so they can't get out for a few hours, give them a lot of coffee and ask them who they know. And hopefully at the end of the day, you end up with 10 people. So if, if I had no resources at all and I were just starting from scratch and all I had was the board and I knew that the board was committed and they were already giving, then the first thing I'd wanna do is find out who else they know. Because most of us know a few people that we haven't thought about lately. And it'd be great to welcome them to the party that's so meaningful to us. Mm -hmm. And so why not just ask them that question first? Let's start out with 10 by 10 by 10. Let's find the 10 they know. Let's figure out what the strategy is for those 10. Let's go and talk to those 10 people and work our way through that. And if we do have a good uh, case statement, we didn't talk about that earlier, but it's kind of part and parcel of our strategic plan and our fundraising plan, a good case statement explaining why we're in business and why it's important and what we're gonna do. That can be the, the, the piece that uh, then enables us to have those kinds of meaningful conversations with the existing donors who have resources that we find through these tools, the new people we identify through either databases or through members of our board, where we sit down, we show them that document, we say, what do you think? That's perfect. We're talking to Jay Frost today on fundraising. Um, his website is frostonfundraising.com, is it? That's right. Yeah, and you can find all about Jay. It's attractive looking. He's been a TEDx speaker. He does seminars. He's been on both sides of this equation. And um, Russell and I have determined he knows what he's talking about. Um, so, so early stage nonprofits, um, it's a different kind of presentation, isn't it? When you just got your basic board members, you've worked that first plan. Now you're trying to put some money down so you can get going. There, are there different thoughts for people that are just coming out of the chute with their, their organization? Hmm. Well, that's a tough one. Um, I, I guess, I guess there are, but I wonder how much that is really what's a challenge that's uh, because of the program or the funding and how much of it's just um, they're worried about losing control over the mission that they, they love so much. Because the one thing I do run into a little bit, I'd be interested to hear if you two do as well, is when um, I talk to an organization and the, the founder or the chief executive is really loath to, to take advice or to bring new people on the board or to ask people on the board who are not making the level of commitment required to, to consider another kind of role or another responsibility and make room for those who are more committed. All those things um, require a person to let go. Sure. And it's very hard to do. And especially if it's a small organization. I, I do run into sometimes with a really nascent organizations with a working board where there are several family members involved to be very problematic, not because they don't care, not because they're not committed, but rather because it might inhibit their ability to bring in the kinds of ideas and resources which would really allow their, their idea to flourish. It's sort of like a person having a farm 
and then never letting water onto it because you were only waiting for the rain to come. I, I, it, it just doesn't work. And, um, but I feel for them because I know that what they're doing, doing their heart of hearts is trying to bring to re, into, into reality this vision they have uh, for, for a better world. But I think the best way to do that usually is to find other like-minded people and to let them share a bit of the power. And the more they do, I think the more they're likely to find that their ideas um, are, uh, are successful and that the organizations and their missions um, not only flourish, but maybe outlive all of us. Well, so that sounds like to me, what I'm hearing is that, um, and we talk a lot about this, about building strategy. It's all about alignment. It's, it's making sure that we're talking to the right people to begin with. We have to talk to the right people and find that mission alignment. And uh, the likelihood that that's going to kind of go off the rails is a, is a lot different if everybody's aligned. Yeah. But that that involves a whole lot of work, which our Cinevision process will actually take people through. Uh, and it, it's, it's some effort up front, but if you spend that time up front, it smooths, the, uh, it sort of greases the skids to move forward. And so it's definitely a challenge for a new organization. So you have to have the types of things that we build uh, in place, uh, you know, uh, there's a fundraising strategy, there's a donor strategy, there's a grant strategy, there's an approach to everything that mm -hmm. is kind of filtered down from the mission. But it's building that frame, that success frame, and then getting people to execute it. And uh, so a lot of it is about who you know. Uh, realistically, as, as, you, as you have a lot of experience, uh, realistically, what would an organization that is fairly new look, be looking at in terms of the amount of time uh, invested to, uh, to attract some of these major donors? Oh, um, significant. I'd say um, you, you might be lucky. It, it does happen. People just give you a gift. But I, I, I think it's good to budget 12 to 36 months. Okay. Um, I, I mean, that's it, it, the, the problem with that answer, though, is that it's it's too too facile, and it's it's uh, I, and there there are some people who are going to who are already there. They, they've been giving all along. Nobody ever really asked them. In fact, I just um, I've been involved with one organization for most of my life, and uh, talked recently to an ex officio member of their board, who had been uh, involved for even longer, uh, another you know fifteen years more than I have. And he told me in confidence he had never been directly asked for a gift. Hmm. And this hurt him because it, it felt like they had never taken that additional step wow. to, to invite him to invest in the very thing he had devoted so much of his life to. So much of his identity was embodied. In. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all about looking where you are. Who, who do you have? Who do you know? Yeah. That's a, that breaks my heart that, um, that somebody works so hard. There's, there's a, an assumption when we talk about what we're doing that people are just going, oh, let me write you a check. Now, that, that does happen. But, but I find that, that people fall down on the, on the call to action. That they, and, and also, I find that people sometimes talk themselves out of the donation because they tell people everything about it. 
and they don't all they want to know what they want to know what time it is they don't want to build a clock so to, so to, so to speak so i think there's there's um crafting the statement that starts with why is it important right like the 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 simon sinek thing you know start with why yes. um, so um part of the early stage funding is uh, in in i work with entrepreneurs as well and there's a there's a there's a tension between concept people want to oh it's a great concept let me help you so there's love money they love you they love the idea on on the early end uh, one of for us and as colleagues uh, the strategist um, Ed Bogle kind of talks about that love money, but also there's some people that want to see the proof. They want to in business in a like a product or service in a in a business. There's proof of concept. People want to see that's going to work. People will buy it. And, well, can you really do this? You know, we put money, and sometimes funders have put a lot of money into things, and it's going to belly up. So even though it's a gift, it's an investment. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I've seen this trend in the last few years, uh, and I'm sure you have as well, where that that thought process is is now uh, bleeding into what we used to see as philanthropy, not just in small organizations being founded to address needs that are already being addressed by other organizations, but where they didn't have confidence, the organization had that kind of plan to execute. But then uh, it's also being it, it, uh, addressed by uh, new companies, not 501c3s, that are addressing some of these other issues. And there are social benefit companies and other uh, you know, organizations, other things like that, where the, now the public has no measure of control, oversight, uh, or anything else into those companies, which sounds great, liberating, but they can do whatever they want. They can pay themselves whatever they want. I, I'm a little torn about all this because our sector, um, and I agree with you, when you started, you talked about nonprofit sector, and it's, it, it's terrible because it means we're not something instead we are something. They say third sector in Europe, it's a little bit better, but not a lot. We are different. We are different in that if what we have is a public good, not in this kind of wishy-washy social good language, but really literally a public good, and not just because the tax status, but the way we are treated, if that's true, then both we can hold ourselves to a higher standard, but I think maybe donors can hold us to a higher standard. And, and instead of creating competitive organizations, they could really partner with us. If we were willing to partner with them, but we could do much better. Um, it, there are needs that are not being addressed and won't be addressed by the government. And it's left to us or they won't be addressed at all. Um, is the better route to for somebody who just made some money yesterday to start their own company to do it or to start a new 501c3? Or is it for us to, you know what, open our doors a little bit to this new generation donors and let them be our partners in doing a better job? I think it's the latter. Um, we already have the infrastructure to do it. We already have the tax code to do it. And we have people with a lot of dough. We better bring those things together if we really want to make some change. Absolutely. That's, you're so spot on. We, we find a lot of people dumb down when they get hit the word nonprofit. And I believe IRS calls it tax exempt. And I think that's something we, we put it. And you, you, you just hit on another non, what we're not is non, uh, non-governmental organization. So uh, Jay, we're headed to the closing here. I want to ask you, think for a minute, I'm going to do a sponsor moment. But after the sponsor moment, uh, what, what is a tip or a thought or a challenge you'd like to leave with listeners? I'll repeat that it's uh, frost on funding, is it? Frost on funding, Dr. Fundraising. fundraising. Frost on fundraising. It's frost on fundraising, now that I remember, because I stumbled, frostonfundraising.com. 
And um, uh, this man knows, knows his stuff. You talk about benefit corporations, that's a B Corp. Um, those corporations typically do not qualify for grants. We have to be a 501c3. So I want to make sure people, and we did get a, a good, from one of our guests about a year ago, uh, he said, this isn't a for-profit enterprise. It's a for-purpose enterprise, which was one of the most positive settings of that. Oh, yeah. Um, our sponsor today is our CineVision online community. We have a number of sponsors, but we're going to talk about an online community for community builders. Every week, you get to have Q&A with you. It's, it's an exclusive membership. You don't have the noise of social media. You don't have people trying to hustle you for money. You don't have people trying to sell you stuff. So for one membership, you get uh, a lot of stuff. If you really get a, a stru structured learning program, it's not that you learn one thing, it's that you learn a whole system of things that help you be better at running the organization so you can fully achieve the mission that you've written down on a piece of paper. So Cinevision Leadership Foundation has a, a community for community builders, centervisionleadership.org. And if you go to this podcast, the nonprofit exchange, uh, that'll take you to the community. This is a function of the community. So go to the nonprofitexchange.org and you'll be there. And there's a blue button at the top. That's a join button. And right now you can join for a dollar and there's a recurring billing, but you get to go in and check it out. Um, so it's the continuity of structured learning that is missing in our industry. And a lot of nonprofit leaders feel like they're the Lone Ranger. So go to check it out when you go to nonprofit, the nonprofitexchange.org. So Jay, this has been very helpful today. What thought do you want to leave or challenge or tip? Do you want to leave in people's minds? Hmm. Maybe to just, um, as they look into 2020, uh, that they think about how can I expand uh, the group of people that I want to welcome into my, my little club, the place where we're doing our work, that um, they uh, aim higher in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and then seek out the few people who can help them to accomplish it and to do so without forgetting all the others who are probably going to rise to the occasion later. That means do a bit of research and it means to make sure that you've got your, your case down in your pocket and you know exactly why you're in business and to focus on them, not on yourself. Because uh, then the conversations will resonate when you have you know, mission alignment. Uh, so you don't need to worry about that part. You don't need to worry about selling. You just worry about listening carefully and then welcoming people into the fold. Great stuff. Well, Jay Frost, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really insightful uh, as far as talking about getting in touch with major donors, just doing the things you need to do to uh, set yourself up for success. You, we are here every week on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on the Nonprofit Exchange. We're coming up on holiday season. We'd like to thank every one of you who's come in to support us over the 2019. You've made it a great year for us, and we look forward to journeying through 2020 with you. Uh, please join the community. When you come on to our website, there's a big blue button that says join now. Come in, uh, converse with us. We are here every week. Uh, there's all sorts of information and tools at that website, and uh, you can find out ways to connect with us and learn. 
So this is Russell Dennis signing off, thanking all of you, wishing you the best of holiday seasons here at the Nonprofit Exchange. And we will be here next week at this same time. Thank you for all that you do. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.